Okay. I think we're ready. And we are in Matthew chapter 20. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 20. And we'll read starting in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, but we did do verses 17 to 19, and we started a little bit of verses 20 to 28 last week, but we ran short on time. So we'll just start that over again and then pick up from there and take off. So Matthew chapter 20, and we will begin reading in verse 17. Matthew 20, 17. It says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. He said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. After Jesus came to them, or after, uh, after hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly warned them uh, to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be together tonight, Lord, with Your people, and Lord, to be gathered uh, to open Your Word and to be taught by You. And Father, we do ask that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, give us a heart to understand and to know the truth. Lord, may we have uh, the proper attitude toward one another. Lord, one of humility. Lord, one... Uh, that looks not for our own interest, but, Lord, that is looking for the interest of others. Lord, that we would not be filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. And, Lord, that we would not, uh, Lord, be living and operating under the wisdom of this present world, but rather that we might do those things that are pleasing in Your sight. So, Father, teach us tonight as we study Your Word. Lord, teach us of the path of humility, Lord, of self-denial, Lord, uh, preferring others over and above ourselves. And Lord, that it is the least who will be greatest in your kingdom. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, here in Matthew chapter 20, we dealt with these verses last week in verses 17 to 19, where Jesus is teaching about the upcoming uh, death that he is going to face in Jerusalem. Right? And this is, again, 
setting the stage for his departure from this present world, but also it is uh, necessary for his disciples to know these things in order to prepare them for what is about to come, but also to teach them the nature of the kingdom of God. That the nature of Christ's kingdom is not one uh, where you are asserting your, yourself, where you are thinking about your own interests, where you are seeking to put yourself over and above others. But rather, the way that Jesus receives His glory is by going and suffering and dying on the cross on behalf of others, right? For our sake, for our benefit. Not thinking about His own interests, not thinking about what is best for Him, but rather thinking about what's best for us and doing those things that are necessary for our own salvation. Well, if this is the way it is with our King and with the Captain of our salvation, then this is the way it should be with us as well, in the way that we relate to one another. He laid down His life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And yet there are a few things that are uh, more contrary to our own pride and to the human condition, our own sin in our flesh, than the idea of thinking about others and not thinking about ourselves. Because we all have this inclination to think that we are superior to all men, to think that we are the fount of all wisdom and understanding, and to think that all people should serve us. But this isn't the nature of the kingdom of Christ. And so we have to learn from His example and walk in the path in which He walked by laying down our lives for the sake of others. And here we have this then exemplified in the opposite direction, what we shouldn't be doing, uh, and how hard it is for us to learn this truth. It's something that we have to fight against over and over and over again. And even the disciples of Christ, they had to fight against their flesh. Their flesh was still there. It was still operating, though they are true believers. And in many ways, they surpass us. And they've been with Christ for many years. This is coming up toward the very end of His life, right? Next week, we get into chapter 21, which is the triumphal entry. This is leading up to the final week of the life of Christ. So the disciples have been with Him already for three years under His ministry, under His teaching and tutelage, and yet even being with Christ as your discipler, right, as your mentor, as your master for three years, they still are dealing with issues related to the flesh, right? Dealing with this desire, this attitude of seeking their own interests over and above one another. And so this is the way it will be with us as well, and we have to fight against it. We have to fight against it so that it doesn't lead to chaos and turmoil and misery, whether that be in the home, whether that be in the church, whether that be in society, wherever we find ourselves, when the flesh rises up, then the flesh leads to sin and death and misery, and so we have to fight against it. So let's pick up in verse 20. And here, verses 20 to 23, you see this, uh, this wish or this desire, the request that is made by the mother of the sons of Zebedee, but also with their full knowledge and understanding as well. Verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Here, this request comes 
from the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. James and John being two of his disciples, but also two of his most prominent disciples. Right? We know that there were the three, Peter, James, and John, who were singled out above the others and given some preferential treatment, right? some access that the others did not have, such as when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus uh, from the dead. He did not take all the disciples with him into the room to see this miracle, but he took these three. And then also on the Mount of Transfiguration. He did not take all of the disciples with him, but he did take Peter, James, and John. So when there were these events where either it was not possible for all of them to be there, or it was something that needed to be in a more secluded, uh, a, a more intimate knowledge and understanding, these were the three that were selected to serve as witnesses to what Jesus was doing, to give veracity to the truthfulness of these things. So these three were then singled out in this way, and they are given this position of honor even amongst the disciples by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now their mother comes to Jesus asking this request, asking for a request from Him. And the mother is also herself a believer. She is a follower of Christ and is one of the godly women who have traveled with Jesus throughout the course of His ministry, and they are the ones that tend to His needs and the needs of the disciples, so that Jesus and the, the men can devote themselves to ministry, to preaching, to teaching, to doing the miracles, doing the good deeds that they are doing. The women are the ones that help, assist, and provide uh, meals, lodging, whatever is necessary for Jesus to be sustained in this way. And she is herself a follower of Christ. We remember in Matthew 27, Matthew 27, verse 56, that she was one of the ones who was there at the cross witnessing the crucifixion of Christ. When most of the disciples, save John, had ran away, and John initially did, but he also was there at the cross because Jesus addressed him uh, when he was there dying uh, to take care of his mother. But also we see that there were women who were there. And in 2756, it says, Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to Him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee was with them here as they're coming into Jerusalem, and she stayed with Him and was even there during His crucifixion while He was being put to death and was looking on and watching these things. So she is herself a follower of Christ. So she's not a wicked woman, a perverse woman, an immoral woman, but is herself a follower of Christ and one who was very useful in the ministry as someone who was helping attend to the needs of Christ during the time of His earthly ministry. Also, we remember from... In, if you go to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9... Verses 33 to 37. Mark chapter 9, actually we'll pick up in verse 30. Verses 30 to 37. It says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. 
For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So this uh, tendency, uh, this sin to talk about, to think about, to argue about who is the greatest, this is not new to them. This is something that has been going on, and Jesus has already addressed it once here in Mark chapter 9, 30 to 37, but it's still within them. So it's still in them, it's still a part of their flesh, and something that they must be vigilant against and that they must fight against. But here we see that it's coming up again. It's coming up again in terms of who is the greatest, and uh, James and John with their mother making a uh, power play or making, uh, taking initiative to secure for themselves positions of honor over and against the others. Okay, So this is why the mother comes to Jesus with her sons and she bows down and she makes a request of Christ, making a request of Him, which again is good to bow down before Christ and is good to make a request of Him so long as what you are requesting is something that is good and consistent with the will of God. Verse 21, He said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Her request is that Christ would grant to her two sons these positions of high honor, of highest honor, over and above the others, right? There are 12 disciples, and Jesus had already said in chapter 19, 28, that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel when He comes into His kingdom. So He's already promised them to sit on thrones. Obviously, Christ will have the throne of highest honor. He will be the one who has the chief throne, but then they will sit on thrones under Him, right? As princes, as rulers, in the kingdom of God, ruling and reigning under the authority of Christ. Well, if Christ's throne is there in the middle, and then you have these 12 thrones, there's two, one on the right and one on the left, that are going to be in closer proximity to Christ. And this is the position of high honor, right? In terms of the under rulers, you want to either be on the right or the left of the king, because that shows that you are the advisor, the counselor, the under ruler who has this position of high honor. And so they are asking for this position for themselves before the others can ask for it and wanting Jesus to grant this to them when he enters into his kingdom. So they're not thinking in terms of humility. They're not thinking in terms of preferring others above themselves but they're thinking about their own interests and doing what's necessary to secure for themselves positions of honor and glory in the kingdom of God, which is contrary to what Christ has taught them and contrary to the very 
nature of the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verse 3. says, Do nothing from, selfish, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we are not to have an attitude of selfishness, of empty conceit, but with humility we are to regard others as more important than ourselves. So are they doing that in this passage? No, they're looking out for their own interests. Now there is a place for us to look out for our own interests, right? If your arm is, uh, if you have a gaping wound on your arm, if you uh, have a chainsaw and you cut your arm and you need to go to the hospital, well, it's not time to go help your neighbor mow his yard or to go help your neighbor do this or that. You need to look to your own interest at that time and make sure that you don't die in that way. However, generally speaking, day in and day out, when we're, you know, we do tend to ourselves and we do what is necessary for our own good and for our own body and for our own family, but we also need to be thinking about the interests of others. And within the church, within the home, we need to prefer others over and above ourselves. Instead of thinking only of our own interests and what's best for us, we need to think of others and have humility of mind and put them above ourselves. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verses 25 and 26. Actually, read verses 24 to 26. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Right? If we belong to Christ, then we are to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, what passion and desire in the flesh is, has a greater, a stronger pull upon men than the desire to prefer ourselves above everyone else, to think only of our own interests, to think that we're the center of the universe. Right? This is the very seed of pride within men, and this is found in the flesh. Well, if we belong to Christ, we're supposed to crucify the flesh with its desires. We're supposed to walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit with the result that we will not be boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, which is, again, the exact opposite of what the disciples are doing, at least these two and their mother, when they go to Jesus and seek to get these positions of honor for themselves. They're being boastful. They're being envious. They're being conceited. They're not thinking of others. They're only thinking of themselves. They're not considering what this is going to do to the rest of them, how it's going to make them feel, what it's going to cause amongst their own uh, body and their own group. Right? They're a very tight-knit group. And this is going to cause an upheaval. Also, they're not considering Christ. That this is right before He goes and is about to die on the cross. He has a lot on His mind as He's thinking about His upcoming departure from this world. He's fixing to walk into Jerusalem, the very seat of hostility against Him. And yet here He is having to quell these fires and conflicts 
amongst his own disciples because these ones are thinking only of themselves. So this is all that is going on. And it is a reminder to us how easily the flesh can deceive us. Because again, we're not talking about some novice. We're not talking about some new believer here. We're talking about two of the disciples of Christ, two of His apostles, and their mother, who is herself a very godly woman who has given up much to follow Christ and has been of great service and usefulness to His ministry. They have been with Him. They have heard Him teach. They have seen the way that He lives. And yet, in spite of all of this, the flesh is still rising up, welling up within them. Well, if that is happening to them, then what's going to happen to us as well? We all stumble in many ways, in many ways, right? And this is one of the ways that we stumble. So we have to be on guard. We have to be aware of this. But also, when it happens, then we just have to repent and deal with it. Deal with it and do what is necessary. James chapter 4, James chapter 4 James 4, verses 1 to 10. It says, what, are the, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. There, the source of quarrels and conflict is the uh, pleasures that wage war in their members. That's what's causing quarrels and conflicts among them. They are lusting after pleasure so they commit murder. They're envious of others and cannot obtain, so they fight and quarrel. Then they don't have because they're not asking, and then even if they do ask, they're not receiving because they're asking with wrong motives to spend it on their own pleasures. Well, doesn't that fit what's happening here? It's a source of quarreling and conflict among them, them seeking their own pleasures, seeking their own good, asking for something but not receiving because they're asking with the wrong motives. That's what they're doing here. And again, this is in James, John, and their mother. And their mother, all believers. So again, there is sin there, and it has to be dealt with. And Jesus will confront it. He'll deal with it. And then they have to overcome it. And this is the way it will be with us as well. So we have to fight against this, whether it be in the home, the church, society, wherever it is, we have to mitigate against our flesh in this desire to prefer ourselves over and above everyone else. Okay? Verse 22. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? 
And they said to him, We are able. Here, Jesus is saying, the reason you're asking this is because you don't understand the nature of my kingdom. It still isn't sinking in with them. They're thinking in terms of glory, of honor, of exaltation, of position. And ultimately, yes, Jesus will have a glorious kingdom. Ultimately, He will be exalted. Ultimately, He will rise to a position of highest honor. And His people will rise with Him. But what is the means by which Jesus is exalted? How does He obtain this position of highest honor? Well, it is not immediate glory. But before the glory comes immense suffering and hardship and humiliation beyond what anyone has ever witnessed. So they're thinking in terms of glory, but they're not thinking in terms of suffering, the cross, and hardship. And that's why Jesus says, do you understand what you're even asking about? Right? You're saying that you want to be close to me. You want to be on my right and on my left. But do you understand that the pathway by which I'm going to ascend to this position of highest honor is through the suffering of death, and that what you're asking for is to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. And are you able to drink that cup? Do you understand what it is that you are asking for? Because again, they're not thinking rightly. Their mind is not fixated on the sufferings of Christ. And again, not because Jesus hasn't taught them. He just told them this, right? In verses 17 to 19, what is about to happen to him, but it's not sinking into their mind. This because of their own unbelief. Their own unbelief. They're having to fight and overcome their unbelief. And this is the way it will be with us as well, right? We have to fight and overcome unbelief, pride, selfishness, ambition. All of these things are with us in our flesh, and we have to fight against them. And here, they're not thinking properly about the kingdom of God. They're not thinking of suffering and hardship. They're only thinking of glory and honor. That's why Jesus pushes back against them and says, you don't know what you're asking, right? You don't, you, you don't understand what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they say, yes, we are. We are uh, able to drink that cup. Are they able to drink that cup? Well, go over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 35. It says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. So, they're, they're all saying, well, we'll stay with you. To the, we'll all die with you, Jesus. But he tells them, no, you're going to all deny me. You're going to run away. right? You're not going to stay with me. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And then what came to pass? Exactly what Jesus said. Exactly what Jesus said. And that's not even them dying yet. 
right? When Jesus is going to die, they all run away. So are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they say, yes. So this shows, again, that they have overconfidence, overconfidence in who they are and their ability to stand. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Right? They are not being humble. They're not depending on the Lord. And as a result of their pride, it leads them to say things vainly, to make vain, bold professions about their own stability and who they are when they shouldn't be saying these things. Right. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 3. We ought to say, if the, Lord's, if the Lord wills, I will drink this cup. If the Lord wills, I will not fall away. If the Lord wills, we will go here and there and do this and that, and we will be faithful to the Lord. I need the strength of God to do these things. So we should not have these bold professions of our own uh, worth, value of what we can do, how strong we are, here that oh, I can drink the cup that Jesus is about to drink. Come on, no way, no way. Ecclesiastes 5 verses 1 to 3. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. Well, isn't this, doesn't this fit what's happening here? They're being hasty. They're being impulsive in their words. They're bringing up a matter in the presence of God. Well, who are they saying this to? They're saying it to God in human flesh. So let your words be few. And don't make these kinds of bold professions about your own abilities and what you're going to do for the Lord. Instead, you need to depend upon Him. You have to have humility and pray and say, Lord, help me. Help me be able to drink the cup that you're drinking from. Help me to be faithful to you. Increase my faith. Or say, well, what do you mean by that cup? Right? Tell me exactly what you mean before I say, yes, I'm able to drink it. Explain more what you mean by this so that I don't say something in a foolish way. But they're not thinking that way. All they're thinking about is their own glory and honor. And if drinking the cup means I get on the right and on the left, then yes, I can drink from this cup. We can do it. We will do it, Lord. Then verse 23, he said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. He says, okay, yes, my cup you will drink. You're going to have your share of sufferings and hardships as well. Now, again, the cup that they drink will not be of the same uh, fullness as the cup of Christ, right? His sufferings are greater than any of our sufferings. But He does give sufferings to His people. And yes, Jesus will die. Now, His death is different than their death in that Jesus dies not for His sins, but for our sins, and He suffers the full wrath of God. When He calls one of His saints to die for Him, they're not suffering the wrath of God because of the sins of others, and they're not even being put to death because of their own sins that they've committed against God. It's the way that God is going to glorify Himself in their life, and there's great honor and blessing 
in the death of a saint in that way. So, but they are going to have their share of sufferings. And at least one of them is going to die a violent death, right? James. James dies is the first apostle to be put to death. He was put to death by Herod. John lives to be a very old man, but he also knows his share of sufferings. And even as an old man, he was there on the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner, as an old man out there suffering because of the Lord. So you're going to drink my cup, right? That's what Jesus says to them. However, to let you sit on my right and left, that's not mine to give, but it's for the Father. The Father will appoint that, and I'm not going to grant that to you uh, at this time, but rather the Father will give it to whom it is prepared for. So it's not mine to give to you at this point. Now, in terms of this cup, let's see a couple of passages. The cup of the Lord is used to refer to the wrath of God, which again comes, or the sufferings and hardships that come upon the people of God. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16, in terms of Christ, the cup is His sufferings, but also with Christ, it includes the wrath of God because of sin, because of sin, not for His sins, but for our sins. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16 says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So there, the cup of the Lord is the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. And he's saying, give that to the nations and make them drink it meaning God's going to execute His judgments upon them. That's what Jesus is drinking when He goes to the cross. He's drinking the judgment of God coming upon Himself for our sins, right? For our sins. That's the cup that He is about to drink. Also in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, 39, Matthew 26, 39, says, He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here the cup is his impending death, his death on the cross, where he will suffer the wrath of God. Also in John chapter 18, in John 18, In verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink of it? Here again, the cup is the wrath of God that He is going to endure on the cross for our sakes. And then one last passage, Revelation chapter 1. Well, two more actually. Revelation 1.9. Here, so the cup is the wrath of God, the judgment of God, seen in the sufferings of Christ. Now, in terms of the disciples, they will drink from the cup of suffering, though when they're drinking from the cup of suffering, 
it is not because God's wrath against them because of their sin. So that is a difference between the cup that Christ drank and the cup that we drink. We drink suffering in order for it to sanctify us and to glorify God for our own benefit. But when Christ gives sufferings to His people, they can be chastisements and disciplines for our sins, right? To drive sin out of us. But it's not to destroy us. It's not to put us to death. That's what happened to Jesus. He put Him to death. He gave Him His wrath, His condemnation to drink because of our sin. But He doesn't do that for us. However, He does call us to suffer, to suffer for Him. And that's what John and James are going to do. John, or Revelation 1, verse 9, this would be John. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So there he's on this island as a prisoner because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus, because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, he was put in prison on this island, even as a very old man, as a very old man. So did he drink of the cup? Yes, he had to drink of the cup. Then also Acts chapter 12, he had his share of sufferings. Acts 12, 1 to 2, this would be his brother James. It says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So James was the first of the apostles to be put to death. And he was put to death with a sword by wicked King Herod. So they had to have their share of sufferings. They drank from the cup of Christ, but they were not granted these positions of honor that they desired, but rather that was given to whom the Father has prepared it for. He's already told them that they'll sit on thrones. That should be enough. That should be enough for us to know that if, even if we just get to go and be a, uh, a janitor in heaven, right, a, a street sweeper in heaven, that should be enough for us, right? But He's also promised us thrones. So what more do we want, right, than, than what He's already granted to us? It's more than we deserve, so we shouldn't be striving for all of these things for ourselves. Okay, now verse 24, what happens? In hearing this, then, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Here, the result of this request... When the others hear it, they become indignant with the two brothers. They're furious. They're upset. right? Not because, why are you pestering Jesus with these things? Don't you know that He's about to go and die on the cross? Is that why they're upset? No, they're upset because they beat Him to the punch. right? They asked before they could. And they're, they're only thinking about themselves. And they're trying to, to outdo us and get themselves into a higher position. So the result is they become indignant. They become upset when they hear what the brothers are doing. And this reminds us that a little leaven 
leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin will spread and it will infect many, many people, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Also, Hebrews chapter 12. What happens when a root of bitterness springs up? Many become defiled. Many become defiled. Isn't that what's happening here? A root of bitterness, a root of selfishness and conceit is springing up in these two. And by it, many are becoming defiled. Because now the rest of them are committing sin because they're angry. And they have something against their brother. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Many be defiled by this root of bitterness. And while we're over here, how about James chapter 3? James chapter 3. Thirteen to eighteen. James three thirteen says, "Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist." There is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil thing. Well, isn't that what's happening here? The two have selfishness, they're conceited, they're acting in this envious way toward the others, not looking for the interest of others, they're not loving their neighbor as themselves, they're exercising with their mother an earthly, natural, demonic kind of wisdom in what they are doing. The way they're thinking and the way that they're living and acting is not consistent with the wisdom that is from above, but is rather the wisdom that is from below. And the result of that wisdom is both sin in them, and then it also leads to sin in the other ten. Because now they're indignant with them, and they're all fighting and bickering and quarreling amongst themselves. They have a conflict as a result of these things. This is what Jesus is having to deal with right before His crucifixion. So what does He do? He has to put the fire out, teach them, use it to teach them, and help them overcome it. So, verse 25, Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Jesus calls them to Himself, and He reminds them, how are you behaving, right? How are you acting, right? Whose example are you following? Are you following my example? Are you walking in my footsteps? Or are you behaving like the Gentiles and the Gentile rulers who exercise authority over their people and they do so, right? They, they tread upon them. This is the way that they behave. 
the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. Their great men exercised authority over them. These Gentile unbelieving rulers used their position, used their authority to exalt themselves at the expense of everyone else. They use people, they abuse them, they exploit them in whatever way they want for their own pleasures and for their own benefit. This is the way that the rulers of the Gentiles live. We know this to be the case as well, right? Don't we see this even in our own uh, government, our, rep our representatives who are there to represent their own selfish interests? No, they're supposed to represent us and what is best for their constituents. And yet many times it feels like they're there to represent themselves and what is best for them, right? At the expense of all of us through their excessive taxation. Well, and that's in a government that is representative. How much more in a tyrannical government with a king or a ruler who has unlimited power to do whatever he wishes to his, those who are under his authority. An example of this would be 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings 12 verses uh, we'll pick up in verse 6. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 6 to 15. This is Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. 1 Kings 12, 6. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put upon us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas your father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him, and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions." So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So there, Rehoboam, when the older men counseled him to serve the people, then they will love you and serve you. They'll be loyal and faithful to you. He rejected that and instead was going to put even heavier burdens upon them, exploiting them in this way. Well, that's what unbelievers do. And Rehoboam was a wicked man. He was an unbelieving king. This is what Gentile rulers, unbelieving rulers, do to the people. They exploit them for their own benefit and for their own causes. But that's not the way that we should behave toward one another. And that's why in verse 26 he says, it's not to be this way among you. Well, at this point, James and John and the mother, they're behaving like the Gentiles. They're behaving like an unbeliever in the way that they are seeking 
to exploit the others. And he says, you shouldn't behave like this. And then the rest of you are participating because you're indignant and upset, not because of their sin, but because you want the position for yourself as well. So he's telling them, you're acting like unbelievers. Don't behave in this way. But instead, whoever wishes to be great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be your slave. This is the proper attitude that we should have in the church of Jesus Christ. And who is our example? Who is the one that paves the way for us, that gives us the example that we ought to follow? It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. If anyone who ever walked the face of the earth deserved to be served, it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. More than any other king or ruler, because He and He alone is God in human flesh. And yet when Jesus came at His incarnation during His ministry, He did not come so that people could serve Him, but instead He served them. Isn't that true throughout the course of His life? Isn't He constantly serving others, doing what's best for them, denying Himself, even food, sleep, the basic necessities of life because of His compassion and His love for other people in order to serve them, to minister to them? He sees the crowd and He has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees people and He's constantly filled with compassion for them. And so He serves them, denying Himself in His own necessities, right? Not His pleasures, His necessities for the sake of other people. This is what, and then ultimately, He dies on the cross for our sins. This is the way He lived from start to finish. He did not serve but he served and he gave his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for us. So of all people who ever lived on the earth, he was not thinking of his own interests, but he was thinking of our interest, of our benefit. Well, that's the mind and the attitude that we ought to have in ourselves. It's the same mind and the same attitude that Jesus had. John chapter 13, John 13 John 13, verse 12. This is when He washes His disciples' feet. John 13, 12. So when He had washed their feet and taken His garment and reclined at the table again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call Me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Right? He is the Lord and teacher. They call him that because that's what he is. You're right to call me your Lord and teacher. Yet I am your Lord and teacher, but I watch your feet. Those who are my slaves those who are my disciples, right? You should be washing my feet, but instead I wash your feet. And do you understand the significance of this? Why I did this? I did it for an example that you ought to do to one another the same that I have done to you. Is the slave greater than his master? No. 
So if the master of the house will gird up his loins and come and wash the feet of the slaves, then shouldn't the slaves do that for one another as well? Shouldn't they have that same attitude in themselves? Well, this is how we should be in the church. This is how we should be in our homes. We should be thinking of one another, serving one another, right? Being a slave to one another, washing each other's feet. Then also Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that attitude that was in Jesus should be in us as well. And He emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant. He humbled Himself even to the point of death for our benefit. So we ought to lay down our lives for one another as well. Right? Day in and day out, this is the way that we should live toward one another. That's what He's teaching His disciples. And this is what we need to do as well. And when the flesh rises up, we have to crucify it with its desires. Then verse 29. After they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Here we have these two uh, blind men sitting by the road. As Jesus is leaving Jericho, there's this large crowd following him. These two blind men are sitting by the road, and it comes to their attention that they would have heard the, uh, all the commotion, the crowd that's going by, and naturally they would have inquired what's going on, right? What's happening? They find out that Jesus is the one who is passing by. And so they start crying out to him, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Here in the way that they're addressing him, they show that they have a proper understanding of the person of Christ. They know that he is the Lord, meaning the Lord God, and also that he is the son of David. So they understand that he is God in human flesh. That's why they're addressing him. That's, and that's why they're asking him to heal them. Because who can heal the eyes of the blind except the Lord God, the Lord God. So they're crying out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Also, they know they don't deserve, they're not entitled, right. right? Like so many people in our own generation who are entitled to everything, free this, free that. Well, they're not like that. They want mercy. They're asking for mercy. And if they're asking for mercy, they know that it's undeserved. Jesus doesn't have to do this for them, but they're appealing to His graciousness, to His kindness, to His mercy, which is the way that we have to be as well. 
we have to appeal to the mercy of God because none of us deserve anything from God unless He gives it to us by His grace, as a gift of grace. So, they understand rightly who the person of Christ is. And they want to receive their sight. That's what they're asking Him to do. Have mercy on us and give us our sight. Well, the crowd, when they hear them, they tell them to shut Quiet down, you know, quiet down. You're, you're being loud. They're screaming here, making a commotion. And so they tell him, be quiet. Don't bother him. He's too busy to deal with you people. And they cry out all the more. So they start screaming even louder for him to have mercy on them. And this is the way that we should be as well. Whenever there are obstacles to our faith, obstacles to the mercy of God, whatever obstacle is in front of us, we have to overcome it. Here, the crowd is an obstacle, but isn't going to deter them from getting what they desire and what they want from the Lord. No, they're going to scream all the more until Jesus Himself tells them to be quiet or denies them what they want. So they're not going to let this crowd of grumblers tell them what they can and can't do when they need and desire the mercy of God. And there should be nothing that would hinder us from seeking Christ in this way even if people are telling us to be quiet. So they cry out even all the more, and they want Jesus to have mercy on them. So Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, We want our eyes to be opened. The mercy they want is for their eyes to be opened, because they're blind men, and they know that Jesus has the power to do this. And then moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed Him. Notice it's the compassion of Christ that motivates and moves Him to grant their request, to give them the mercy that they desire, which is the same way it is for us. It is the love of God, the compassion of God toward His people that leads God to send Christ to die on the cross for our sins, and that leads God to give to us daily the grace and mercy that we need to be faithful to Him, to walk with Him. Because we need His mercy every morning. Every day we need the faithfulness of God. And what is it that motivates God to do this for us? It is His love and compassion for us. It's not anything good in us, but rather it is His love, His compassion that comes from Him that is the source of all of the benefits, the grace and mercy that we have. And then they receive their sight and they follow Christ. So they're not these half-hearted people who want something from Jesus and then as soon as they get it, they walk away and want nothing more to do with Him. Right? They show here that their desire for the physical is just an emblem of their greater desire for the spiritual, for spiritual sight. And it's manifested in that they followed Christ. They don't forsake Him and leave Him. Right? Remember the ten lepers when they were healed and only one returned and the other nine were long gone? They only wanted the physical, but they didn't want the spiritual. But the one manifested by His coming back and giving glory to God that He was interested mostly in the spiritual and then the physical was an emblem or a token of the spiritual and what God can do and that's the way it is here. And this miracle is to teach the greater spiritual reality that Christ has the power to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. In Matthew chapter 11... Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. 
When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, uh, now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So the reason these miracles accompanied Christ in the proliferation and the way that they did was as a testimony, a manifestation that he was the Son of God, he was the Christ, and salvation could be found in him. The blind receive their sight. Again, not all of us are physically blind. None of us here are physically blind. But we all are, by nature, spiritually blind. And just as Jesus has the power to heal our physical eyes, the physical eyes of these two blind men, so He has the power to heal the spiritual eyes of any man, of any man that He chooses to have compassion upon. And if we have come to know Him and understand the gospel for our own salvation, it is because He has opened our eyes so that we might see His glory and see that salvation is found in Him. That's what makes the difference between us and so many others who want nothing to do with Christ. He has opened our eyes so that we can see, and it's every bit as miraculous as what He has done here with these two blind men. So, so that's the way that we should look at our own conversion, salvation, our own spiritual understanding. It is a gift of God, a mercy that God has given to us that comes from His compassion. So, okay, well, we'll stop there. We'll stop there at the end of 20, and next week we'll pick up into chapter 21.